Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Today's episode of the BS Podcast is going to be guest hosted by Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald. It is also brought to you by SeatGeek, our presenting sponsor, as well as my favorite app for purchasing tickets to sporting events, concerts, and whatever else. All you have to do is download the free SeatGeek app, use promo code BS, and you'll get a $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase. Every ticket purchased on SeatGeek is backed by a 100% guarantee. It's the best and the smartest way to buy tickets. Again, download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code BS. Without further ado, Chris and Andy. Hello, and welcome to the Bill Simmons Podcast. My name is Chris Ryan. I am not Bill Simmons, but I do host a podcast called The Watch with my friend Andy Greenwald, where we talk about television and all of pop culture. This is now part of the Channel 33 feed. If you want to check out some more Bill Simmons Podcast Network podcasts, you can go and subscribe to Channel 33. It's myself and Andy on The Watch. Juliet Lindman will be on. Andy's going to have his own show, The Andy Greenwald Show, and I'm sure we'll have some more surprises for you guys soon. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. That's Channel 33, part of the Bill Simmons Podcast Network. Let's go with this new episode of The Watch. Thanks for listening to the Bill Simmons Podcast. Hello, and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am a podcaster on the Bill Simmons Podcast Network. And on the other line, he just liquidated his 401k to get a shot at LifeSpring. It's Andy Greenwald! Oh, it feels good to hear you shout uncomfortably loudly in my ear, buddy. (laughs) What's going on, man? This is exciting. I didn't know what you were going to say. This is our first, uh, this is our preview show, but this is our first time on the new new digs. I like it. Nothing like a deep Fargo season two reference to just rope everybody in. Andy, this is a new podcast we're doing. It's called The Watch. You may remember Andy and I from the Hollywood Perspectives podcast Poor from our Grantland days. Yeah, those were the days, but those days are gone now. We're excited for what's new. It's a we're new day. For what's to come. What are we going to be doing on this pod? Oh, Chris, we're going to be, I mean, I clearly we're just going to be bantering to the best of our abilities. We're going to talk about TV, because that's kind of our thing. We're going to, I think I might start seeing movies again, so maybe <laughs> we'll talk about those. Um, we're going to talk about songs that we like, people that we're obsessed with, Jeremy Renner interviews, but really, you know, all our old obsessions are going to come back to the fore. Yeah, well, let's I not think- waste any time. Let's get to the television stuff. We talked a little bit, uh, I think it was last week we were on this very same Bill Simmons podcast, and we talked a little bit about some of the shows that we we're digging right now, but we wanted to get into, you know, a little bit more of a survey of the, the landscape, um, get a little more granular with it. And there's no better way to talk about like kind of the state of TV right now than to start with what probably is the best show on television. And that's Fargo. I thought you were going to say The Affair. I thought because we were on the Bill Simmons <laughs> No, Bill's network, not here, so I don't to... have to talk about The Affair at all. Yes. Okay. <laughs> let's really, let's chop it up. <laughs> Fargo is so good. Andy, Fargo. why is Fargo good? Because I feel like here's the thing: is like Fargo is the classic like like online at intelligentsia, and you just hear two dudes online being like, "Man, Fargo is so good, bro. Oh, it is so good this season. No, it is so good." And nobody says why. And you know, in my in my two weeks since I stopped being a TV critic, I got to tell you, it's been uh, very freeing not explaining to people. But here's our opportunity. But you so- do stand online at coffee shops and just mutter, "Fargo is so good." Fargo is so- Oh, my God, this pour-over coffee is so good. Uh, God, you know my life so well, even though we're separated by a country. Um, Here's the thing about Fargo. Um, We use the word situation in TV a lot, but usually in reference to comedies, right? We talk about sitcoms or situation comedies. Mm -hmm. But situation is a very rich word that is not used nearly enough for drama or the hour-long show. Because here's the thing about TV. For as much as we talk about the golden age or, you know, the, the, the... the dizzy aesthetic heights of shows like The Nick. I love it when TV. you say, here's the thing about TV. Here's the thing about TV. That, that could be the name of the podcast. <laughs> TV still 
because of the nature of how we get it, because we're sitting on our couch, because it comes into our home, and because we watch it week to week, it still has to create a world that we want to visit or hang around in for a while. And I was joking about the affair, but here's the thing about the affair. I don't want to hang out with those people in their horse farm. <laughs> like, I think, I think it was a bad idea for them to have an affair. I feel like they should know that by now, and let's close the book on it, you know? Yeah. Fargo, because of the nature of the show, and for people who don't know, you know, it, it's a beloved and brilliant um, Coen Brothers film from the 90s, and this guy Noah Hawley did a very unexpected and incredibly risky thing where he basically adapted the tone of the movie, the spirit of the movie, to a uh, limited series last year. It was a huge success, won Emmys, and then he's back for a second season that only tangentially relates to either the movie or the first season. It's kind of a prequel. It's set in the late 70s. But the things that he's done here is that he's sort of Trojan horse something brilliant into something familiar. The show feels like nothing else on TV, right? It is absolutely funny and rich and vibrant and surprising and off-kilter in a way that, like, I don't know what to say, like the best movies, the best novels are, right? But here it is something that we get to invest in every week. And even though the stakes are very much heightened and a little bit little bit wacky, the emotional core of it remains true. So it just becomes this, it becomes pure pleasure to watch it in a way that I think a lot of the TV that we talk about, a lot of the TV that Bill likes, like The Affair, has gotten away from. Yeah. This is a joy to watch. Uh, it definitely is a, a like a complete package, and it, it's 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 its own. There there is no sort of excess, and there's no filler. There's no fat to it. It's it's an hour long show that doesn't have a wasted second, and and that's incredibly impressive. One of the criticisms I had about the first season um, was that it was concentrating on all the wrong parts of the movie. It was sort of sprung from, where it was indulging in some of the kind of like isn't this guy kind of a rube here you know what i mean and a lot of like over quirkiness and all of that stuff has just been stripped away you know and he's just got holly's just gotten yeah. down to like the real core what's interesting is uh fargo's season two actually reminds me a lot of us of another coen brothers movie it's actually my favorite coen brothers movie which is miller's crossing this in very inventive crime epic with a lot of really weird interesting human moments infused into it yeah, this is a very lean and sinewy kind of story. Yeah. I mean, as you, you were right to say that. I mean, there was a lot of, there were crime elements in the first season, and there was, in Billy Bob Thornton's character, there was a, a sort of big, menacing bad in the spirit of um, other Coen Brothers movies, honestly, in the spirit of uh, No Country for Old Men. But this, this season is a crime story. And, you know, people who listen to us in the old HP days know we love crime fiction. We yeah. love genre fiction. And one of the things that I particularly love about this story is that it celebrates the era that it's in. It doesn't hide in it or hide from reality or hide from the present in it. It celebrates it. So everything from the direction feels sort of grainy and like a grindhouse film. But it also creates this world in which the syndicate, you know, which is a which is the name for the mafia that was used in the old um, the Parker novels yeah. that, I, that, that I love so much. The syndicate does PowerPoint presentations in Kansas City about how to take over regional mom-and-pop mob shops, and that's what's going on in North Dakota in this in this thing. And it, it takes familiar ideas and stories, and then it just fills them with actual people. People you know, with names like Bear and Dodd. <laughs> and the Kitchen Brothers. And the Kitchen Brothers. And there's, there's room for quirk, and it really is showing us. And I know, you know, you went down to the wire defending True Detective Season 2, but darkness is best when you let a little light in. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. You mentioned the idea of really embracing the time period it's in, and there's a scene in last week's episode uh, where Patrick Wilson's uh, Lou Silverson character, he's uh, going to the bathroom next to Ronald Reagan, who he's providing a security detail for, who is at that time just running for president for the first time. And uh, they meet next to each other at a urinal in, in, a, in a rest stop or something. And 
I just is it my imagination or does a lot of historical fiction feature scenes where the protagonist bumps into major historical figures at the bathroom? Did that happen like in the Alienist where it's like it's like you know William Taft is is going to the bathroom next to there or like Teddy Roosevelt? Is there, it's always happening in the in the the, the the men's bathroom. A lot of stuff goes down there. It's a way to humanize these great figures. Yes, that's true. It's a classic literary trope of of great men draining the vein. So. Um, one of the things you mentioned the darkness there and 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 I think that uh, a, lot, a lot of uh, modern television has been about the evil inside of all of us or the evil that, that lurks just outside of our door but I haven't seen it so subtly drawn ever before like I have on Fargo and the way that you know I, I think that we're starting to get into a part where I don't really ever need to see uh, a a tip usually um I don't ever need to see a, a moment where a guy who usually is not in touch with his feelings suddenly has like a soliloquy about evil and like yeah. the evil that is that is outside of his oh. house. But the stuff about Patrick Wilson and his wife, uh, play, played by Christine Bellotti, right? Yeah. Is it Bellotti or Melotti? It's it's Chris. It's Kristen. Kristen. And then it's it, then it because then it sort of explodes in, in excitement and melody. It's like Miliotti, right? Oh, okay. Or, well, good. I'm glad I me, called her Christine Bellotti then. Uh, <laughs> It's her illness as like a metaphor for everything, you know, and the idea that he has brought something bad back with him from Vietnam that's yeah. infecting the whole, uh, the whole, the, his whole world, and it, this idea that basically there is this encroachment that Kansas City is coming, or that cancer is coming, or that evil is coming. The way that they have like constructed that around everybody is really, really uh, quite moving. Yeah, it becomes emotional. It's a, it becomes the darkness outside your door. You can't you can't stop its approach. You just have to make your stand and do the best you can. And that's sort of a little bit of a different way of looking at it than the evil that lurks within all of us. You know, it's sort of, that's like a much rougher, more Hobbesian kind of take on yeah. it. And by the way, here's something about TV. It's super Hobbesian. It's mad Hobbesian. Um, I bumped into Hobbes once in a bathroom stall. <laughs> you should have. You would never believe it. On a New Jersey it. turnpike. He was really funny. Here's the thing. Here's another thing I want to say, though. Um, there is a joy to watching Fargo, but I think that comes from what was evidently a joy in creating a joy in creation of Fargo, because you mentioned that um, Lou Salverson uh, goes to the bathroom next to President Ronald Reagan, who's played by Bruce Campbell, who's having a hell of a week, because he's pretty good in that Ash vs. Evil Dead show, too. Um, I love that this is a show that is a major prestige offering by a network that wants to make major prestige shows like FX, and it came off of a successful first season that followed a certain blueprint. And in the second season, there is room for a Ronald Reagan cameo and a UFO that is thus far unexplained. And I feel like there isn't enough of that. There isn't enough of that creative risk-taking in storytelling on TV in general, partly because, you know, the mechanism, the nature of the beast is you kind of just have to reproduce and you kind of keep producing things. And so obviously Noah Hawley and his team were free to sort of start over because they had the name, but they could go in a different direction in season two. Right. But if you think about the chances missed, like we're going to talk about it maybe a little bit more later, but we talk about, when we, when we say well, what's the most risk-taking show on TV right now, we would probably say, outside of Fargo, we would probably say The Nick, but that's purely aesthetic, right? Yeah, that's it's purely all the visual, way... like, and that's a, that's a really good point. It, I was going to say that in a weird way, Fargo, after finding its footing, has really like found its voice you know, in the second season. And kind of become this weird organic, I don't know what's going to happen every week. I don't know what it's going to feel like every week. It could be funny. It could be tragic. It could be atmospheric. I really love the Nick. 
But I think that if the Nick was directed by like replacement level television director, I would say like this is like a bad AMC show. No, that's what was so incredible, particularly about the first season of the Nick, because you could see the seams. You could see the standard TV seams, you know, creeping through. There were it was the same types of of plots. There was you know there were there were the hookers. There was the nut. I mean, it was the same sort of situation where the, the the doctor is an addict, and we've seen a lot of these stories before. We hadn't seen people with their arms stitched to their noses because their noses fell off. But we also hadn't seen television directed like that. And yeah. I feel like one of the reasons why Soderbergh did that is, is he basically like, you know, he, he do you remember the scene in Rushmore when, when Bill Murray is on the phone and he sees the kids playing basketball and he like runs up and blocks a shot? Yes. I feel like that's what Soderbergh was doing to television in the first Yeah, season. and I feel like he that, that that's not uncommon for him to approach a, any number of genres in films and be like, I'm just going to do the biopic, but I'm going to turn the biopic on its head. Or I'm going to do the heist movie, but I'm going to turn the heist movie on its head. Yeah, or, or Contagion. I'm going to do the Let's Kill Gwyneth Paltrow movie, movie, but yeah, I'm going to make exactly. it more compelling. And this was like, I'm going to take a television show and, and, a, and a, a difficult man television show at that, and I'm going to turn it on its head. And there are still operatically beautiful moments in the second season. Mm-hmm. I thought that I, I'm, I'm really into the Andre Holland plotline. Some of the, the Thackeray stuff. I was talking with Sean Fennessy yesterday, and he was like, kind of the problem with this show is that it's gravitating. A, it, it, the first season was so much about Clive Owen and Andre Holland, and they were really the engines of the show, and it really has spread out a lot. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're doing the Juliet Rylands detective story, and there's there's so much stuff going on that I feel like it's too democratic. Yeah, that's often the problem with TV, especially TV that wants to stick around for a while. I did feel in the second season, particularly like in the second season premiere, the writers um, clearly were writing. The first season they were writing at least the pilot. They were writing it not knowing what would become of it. The second season they knew what Soderbergh was going to do to it, and so they wrote scenes like the scenes on the boat towards yeah. him yeah, yeah, so that he could dunk a little more freely. But but let's talk about like that. That's, there, there is a tendency in TV. The arc of TV bends towards conformity. Because the yeah. longer you're on, the more people become familiar with certain things, the, the more, like, as with any enterprise, you go towards what's working. Um, so in, so obviously a show that is set up to be an anthology series or a limited series is going to have more opportunity to take risks. But if we're talking about risk-taking, like, let's think about The Walking Dead for a second, because this is a show where the, like, the, the Bible of the show says that it's okay that corpses reanimate and eat people. Yes. Like, the world has ended... America is a dystopic hellscape, and people <laughs> and corpses eat people. And yet, every episode, for the most part, up to this season, has been about being as grim and serious as possible about this awful dystopic hellscape, as if they keep having to prove to the world that, like, this is what we're getting away with, this is what we do. But it's like, yo, people are eating faces on your show. Why <laughs> oh, and you get 20 million viewers a week? You could take more chances. They could so, take more chances, and and I think that the only chances they seem to be really willing to take is uh, a will will they or won't they with whether or not somebody's dead, right? Well, that said, I will say, and I, I should have spoken up for this last last week when we were talking to Bill. Um, this season has been a lot more interesting, not just in the is he dead or isn't he dead, which by the way isn't actually interesting, but interesting because of the the, the more um, formal chances it's taking this entire season so far has taken place on one day there's been one episode that was essentially a a flashback and that was the morgan episode um but the rest of it has essentially taken place on one day when one of rick's plans which by the way was a catastrophically stupid plan great but rick is super good at planning stuff rick is so good at planning they yada yada it so fast they haven't really really had any time to dwell on the fact of how epically he screwed up yeah but um but that in and of itself is interesting that like 
it's these are just cascading moments in a really really shitty day in what by the way is you got to say it would have to be one of the shittiest years in american history right <laughs> what i want to see on walking dead is one day rick goes into a rest stop bathroom and all the living presidents are hanging out there <laughs> They're just I mean, like, hey, you found us. Just like like President Taft. Just it like me, Barack Obama. <laughs> yeah, like what? Here's the thing. Like, You're I just gave listening it a, to Dirty Sprite. Like, yeah, what's up, man? <laughs> I gave the, the Fear of the Walking Dead spinoff a pretty good review because I thought that, you know, after having suffered through the strain, which may be the dumbest show on television, yes. you know, un, uh, it's relatively unchallenged at this point. After watching that show just totally screw the pooch and like actually ending the world because you know this is a show where where, where diseased vampire monsters are running through the subways eating people with their neck mouth and new york and, one is still on and new york one is still broadcasting and like the mayor is cutting ribbons at mall opening um <laughs> they're like way, f train was Blas- under construction today leaving some travelers so <laughs> thanks, frustrated thanks to blasio but <laughs> fear the walking dead you know at least they were basically doing donuts on the strange front lawn being like no no this is how you end the world the problem is the only other show I guess they could come up with to do in this universe is like the nuclear family must stay together show, mm-hmm. which is what all shows are. Like, I I think they should do like where are the living, where are the presidents, where's the safe house? Like, let's say this started to go down and the walls came down on the panic room in the White House, but that was the day like the 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 2019 Duke Blue Devils championship team was visiting, <laughs> you know, and Carly Rae Jepsen or something. I don't know. And like they're all trapped there with the president and his wife. Yeah. It's like, what, you, what is that you make, story? You make the White House sound like the set of, like, Access Hollywood. Today <laughs> at the White House, the 2019 Blue Devil, two Blue Devils. You and, just reset. And you rhymes. White, you just told me that the White House is actually happening, happening behind an Exxon, like, off of Route 202. Yeah, well. <laughs> we all have our different visions of American leadership. Look, and there greatness. are nice parts of Admiral Wilson Boulevard. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. But the point is. Not every, like, TV is, I mean, if, to be fair, TV, the mechanism of making TV and producing TV is not set up for people to be like, we're making a medical show, but yo, there should be a UFO in episode nine. Here's the thing, though, man. Here's the thing about TV. Uh, there you go. Sounds good when you say it. It's not always TV's fault because no. we are spoiled little brats. And mm-hmm. when something is too traditional, like it's if the Nick is veering towards this week on the Nick, somebody does this, somebody does that. Barrow steals some money, gets slapped by a prostitute, and then at the end, Thackeray kills cures syphilis. Like it's if if it does that, we're like, ugh, man, this is so trad. And then when it's something like The Leftovers, and there's like a nine minute musical montage or a caveman scene or like a five minute interrogation between Nora and Erica, that's like the master. Uh, you're like, well, this isn't like what's going on. Like what? Where, yeah. what's, where's every? Where's Kevin? You know, like it's, it's so. I feel like there's. It's really difficult to find that, um, that 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 compromise between being progressive and being conservative in television, aesthetically, I, not not politically. No, I think you're exactly right. I think you're exactly right, and I feel like that's why our reaction to the leftovers has been. Well, I mean, I'll just say, I'll, I'll, I'll interrogate myself here. Like, I feel like it's been problematic, and I tried to write that in my in my review of the second season because. The show is not trying to please its audience in a way that is very discomforting. Like, we are not used to that. You know, the, like the, the, the brilliance of a show like Mad Men, which was undeniably brilliant, is that if you take away some of the, you know, the, the, the formalist ambitions, you take away some of those performances, you take away some of the really deep emotional places that Matt Weiner was, was burrowing into, you know, it was a workplace comedy. Yeah. And we are used to 
watching a show where characters we've grown to love are bantering with each other. Like that is the that is the safest way to Trojan horse that stuff to us. Even though that sh- I would never characterize that show as necessarily safe. But you know, I think that the most interesting thing about the leftovers is that that Damon Lindelof has taken his you know his 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 stature and his his bank account and everything else that was built up during the enormous mainstream success of Lost and gone to HBO and has basically been like, okay, I'm just going to do this now. I'm going to go over here and do this. And I, you know, this is what I wrote. I don't, I've yet to enjoy watching it, but I've come to appreciate that, you know, this is the point. The point sometimes should be with art, should, should be to be unsettled. And I feel like, you know, as you said, we are little whiny babies now with a billion things at our fingertips. And it's hard to choose that kind of experience when you have so many other experiences that are going to be a lot more immediately pleasing. You, you talk about the stitching showing on something like the Nick, where you can kind of just see the see the work a little too much in the in the, the screenwriting sometimes. I think that in a way, the, the leftovers might suffer from the same the the opposite problem, which is just like there's you there's not enough of a map, mm-hmm. and it can feel a little bit like we're just. And in some ways, I have to say, I, I, I have enjoyed the second season, and I, it's kind of doing something very subtly with the last 15 minutes of each episode, which is, mm-hmm. it's really, it's really, you know, slam dunking home, like, those last 15 minutes, where even if the first 40 minutes are agonizing or, or, or punishing or whatever, when you get to the last 15 minutes, it's kind of like Homeland, and you're like, oh my god, what's going to happen next week? You know, and it's not exactly something, I know that Emily Nussbaum wrote something about how home, uh, leftovers is sort of the anti binge watch show. You can't. You have to like clear your palate after you, you watch break, it. Yeah. But you know when I, when I finished Sunday's episode, I was definitely like, I need I need to know, see the sec- next episode right now. I, I'm two two episodes behind, and I'm absolutely going to catch up and, and and finish the season. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting about watching it too is, and maybe this is just because you know I, I spend enough time with this stuff to be watching it or trying to be watching it on two levels, is that Lindelof is like the best there is. At, at story mm-hmm. in a pure way. And you can see moments when he, especially moments that are actively addressing the failures of the first season, just in terms of like, remember those first two episodes where they basically shed the entire first season's plot and excess baggage and just moved the whole show south and introduced new people. I was like, God, that was just elegant. You know, like the way that he just extricated himself from the, from the corner that he had put himself in. Um, and so then when you watch the season and some mysteries unfold and the stuff with the, the, the water and the vanishing, the vanishing water and, and what's going on here, I'm like, no one is better at that. Yeah, but, and he, he's, he's really like, he's throwing basically every play he has in the playbook right now. I mean, there's the guy in the tower above yeah. everybody. There's what's going on with Matt and Mary. There's uh, religious imagery left, right, and center. There's the bird in the box. There's people's ailments that may or may not be cured. There's people who can't sleep and can't wake up. And there's a lot going on. There's a lot of religious imagery. There's a lot of questions it's unlikely that like he'll be able or wants to he's flat out said i'm not answering these questions i'm no i think that's the thing that's what is only that's what's always going to be a little bit frustrating not frustrating in the way that any unanswered questions on mass market um entertainments are frustrating but specifically frustrating because he is so good at stitching these things together yeah and 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 he's intentionally not doing it so it's like watching a great player play left-handed or something which is technically impressive and definitely admirable but sometimes it's frustrating just because you want to see them you, you want to see them make and it up. goes back to the spoiled thing i mean when you have all your questions answered answered for you like for the most part i thought true detective season one answered all of the like who are the who's the yellow king what's carcosa and you find out and you're kind of like oh it was it was nothing it's, uh-huh. a, it's a lawnmower man you know but when you get to 
something like this and it's asking pretty profound questions and you know invoking some pretty mythical topics it's inevitable yeah. i mean human human beings have been asking these questions and trying to find answers for thousands of years and we, we don't seem like we're getting any closer no and then making you know there aren't that many emotions that are pardon the pun that are left over for tv nice people one. to play with they generally play in the same in the same sandbox and so if he's actually making a show about um dissatisfaction and frustration and sadness like that is yeah, again blame and guilt and responsibility yeah that's heavy stuff it's yeah. admirable it's, it's hard to watch on a sunday um i want to actually pivot from that to half hour stuff but i feel like we should say one more thing about fargo since we got away from it which is the acting and performances on this are next level yeah and it's perfectly cash show it's kind of it's kind of weird because you're almost like it's hard to single out anybody because it is just a perfectly cast show. Because there are people on the show this season who are always good, and they're put in wonderful positions to succeed. So, like, Ted Danson is one of the greatest television actors of all time, in that as soon as he's Jonathan on the screen, you're just, you're just happy. And he's doing wonderful, nuanced work. And then there are other people like Nick Offerman, who is always good, um, was wonderful in Parks and Recreation, and is getting a chance to do something a little bit deeper, a little bit darker here. Um, people like Kirsten Dunst, who I've always thought was a great actor has a worthy part, but it's also a fun part, you know, the kind of part that you can actually sink your teeth into. And, like, look at look at Jean Smart, for God's sake. You yeah, know? she's great, man. God, she's good. And it's not like she hasn't been available for your mob boss characters for the last 20 years television. Um, but the person that I feel like a lot of people are focusing on, and rightly so, is Bokeem Woodbine. Yes. Bokeem Woodbine, that is a name that, ha- that we have known because it is a very unique name for, what, 20 years now? I'm dialing up the Bokeem Woodbine IMDb right now. Just fire that up this is a dude who has been acting for a long time yes and generally in the same sorts of roles i mean personally i was a huge fan of bokeem woodbine's work in the rock oh yeah remember he was one of ed harris's dudes i first of all we need to do now that we might be doing it's like a more of a deep dive episode every week we should just we should we should get into like that early two or late '90s, early 2000s Michael Bay cinema. I know. Um, we maybe we will have a chance with 13 Hours, the the true story of the true Benghazi. <laughs> yeah, it's about, I, it's I'm about not, time. I am the true Benghazi. on their pit helmet. Love Bokeem and Dead Presidents. I mean, yeah. just what a what a '95 he had with that and Panther. He was in Jason's Lyric and Crooklyn before that. Uh, he does The Rock in '96, Gridlocked in '97, although uncredited. Um, How do you go uncredited in gridlock? I mean, you know, he was in um, The Sopranos. He was in Martin Lawrence's Life. He was in uh, a, a short film from the Wu-Tang Clan for Gravel Pit. This is what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay, by the he way. was in the Soul Food television series. Right. So he is a successful actor. He has been working for 20 years. In the 21st century, he's been he's been in out, man. He's done, done Sniper 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that's good because Sniper One left a lot of a lot of threads un, unanswered. You know, a lot of things unfinished. It's like who's who's he aiming at? <laughs> what, what's up with this sniper? Why, why does he keep shooting people? Uh, yeah, Bokeem Woodbine has been working steadily. It is pretty fair to say that it's been a long time since anybody has. I mean, I've never seen him like this. I'm, he gets, he's been getting some great scenes, but and you know, he is such an interesting character and giving such a great performance. And who gives him the chance to do it? Like this is the thing that you know. The, the, obviously, this has been a lot of. There's been a lot of conversation about this this week. Aziz Ansari wrote a smart piece about it in the Times about casting on television and about diversity in general. And it's really you know you could talk about opportunity. You can look at it as a you know as social justice and casting people who look different, who act different, who are from different backgrounds than the traditional straight white male. But 
if you watch Fargo and you see Bokeem Woodbine in this role of Mike Milligan, which was not necessarily written, although maybe it was, for an African-American actor, you see what it brings to the viewing experience. It is a completely different take on a character that we've never seen before. We've never heard an accent like that, you know? And this week's episode allowed him the chance to do what all actors want to do, which is pivot, you know, to go from basically benign and charming to absolutely deadly and terrifying in one scene. That's what happens when, you know, everybody loves Raymond's brother's head gets sent to you in a box. But (laughs) I don't blame him. But anyway, that is what's terrific about that show. But what I wanted to say was... We were talking about, like, slogging, not slogging through the leftovers, but basically getting getting up for it, being like, okay, now I'm going to invest in this now. This is going to be my Sunday night. And we talked about this a little bit with Bill last week, too, which is like, it's Sunday night. We've had a nice weekend. Are we going to watch Rick screw things up again on The Walking Dead and just watch someone right. just bleed everywhere? Right. Especially when the half-hour format is having kind of a renaissance. This is your pet it, theory right now. Is the, It is shorter. It is more... It is um, shorter. <laughs> it, which is a big deal. It is a less. It is a smaller commitment of time, and that makes a huge difference because people want to watch stuff, but people get daunted. You know, if I suggest a show to them, and they're like, well, okay, but I have to watch 12 hours of it, or if I say, try it, and you can watch, you know, it's five or six hours, all told. Um, it's a lot, you know, I, I know I'm being pretty basic and granular here about how time works, but Here's the thing about TV. 30 <laughs> minutes is less than 60. This is, there's a reason why we called the show The Watch, because we are really, really, it's about chronology. But it's a different commitment. But also because of that, because of the, the fluidity of these episodes in and out, I think the creators are taking much bigger chances in terms of the storytelling. Than I, we, than we I like what you're expect. saying here. I do, I do feel like, and I'm, just, I'm, I'm, gonna be, I'm not being prickly with you, but I am going to say Ooh. that so I, I think you want to talk about you're the worst in masters of none master I of do. none um because those are two shows that have taken and i think broad city you could say the same thing for that and the, mm-hmm. there's a couple other other ones where it's like pulling apart and putting back together the 30 minute comedy format yeah um, t- togetherness transparent yeah and and i think that they're arguably like i would also venture to say that like the 30-minute sitcom is something that you and I probably don't spend a ton of time talking about. You know what I mean? No, but we probably, if we actually, you know, we're monitoring our DVRing, we probably spend a lot more time watching those shows because they're very enjoyable. Right. You know, we and I have no idea, like, there could have been, like, a whole season where, like, Big Bang Theory was, like, darker than, you know, darker than The Affair and, and, and you know, was doing time jumps and stuff like that. But, you know, it, there it is. It, we, we don't want to be like, have you guys ever heard of 28-minute shows? This is blowing my mind. But, like, they, this is a high watermark right now for what you can do with these comedies. Yeah, because the thing is, you know, we, I, I talk about, like, the chances that something like The Walking Dead could take because it has, it has zombies in it. Point blank, there's zombies in it. So at least 15 million people are going to watch it. <laughs> so you could do anything. Similarly, a sitcom has jokes. It's going to be funny. It is going to be, well, I mean, unless it's Louie, in which case you never know if it's going to be funny yeah, or not. But he has, he has Ronald Reagan in a bathroom with a zombie. Exactly, which would, I would watch, but not necessarily funny. But, you know, but so a show like You're the Worst, which is on FXX now, is on FX last year. First season, one of the funniest, most enjoyable comedies in recent memory, my number two show of 2014. This year started with a bang, very funny, and then the joke stayed there, but the subject matter took a very dark turn, where one of the characters, Gretchen, played by Aya Cash, um, basically says that she is, has clinical depression, and she's suffering through it at the moment, and her boyfriend, Jimmy, cannot fix her, and that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And so that has now lurked in the background and then been brought um, painfully into the foreground throughout the last few episodes. 
and it's been pretty remarkable. Um, what's been interesting, you know, it's, and it's gotten the show a lot of just just acclaim, I think, for the way it's portraying depression, for the way it's juggling its plot lines, and the way it's staying emotionally true to characters that, you know, in, in other less deft hands could be cartoons. But I guess the question becomes, is it the same show? Is it as entertaining? And what do people want out of a, you know, as you said, 28-minute show anyway? I think that there's a little bit of tension on You're the Worst at times where they are trying to graft the darker, more serious parts of it onto the funnier stuff. Because to watch You're the Worst is sort of to accept that these people are the worst and that there's going to be a lot of stuff on the show where you're just like, you know, this is, this is sort of more of like the the curb your enthusiasm kind of sense of humor where it's like incredibly awkward people being terrible to one another. And that's where the humor comes out of it. And at the end of these episodes, typically in this second season, we've been asked to have, you know, empathy or, you know, find pathos in the behaviors that these people are exhibiting. And I think that Aya has done an incredible job this season and it's still like has its really funny moments. It's very interesting to watch. Like in typically with relationship comedies, what you see is, Either they introduce the idea of marriage or a child or a breakup and then a get back together. I mean, that's what we've seen on New Girl. It's what we've seen on nameless, countless comedies. So to have something like um, depression be the plot turn, you know, the, the essentially the, the major driving point of the second season is uh, it's been fascinating to watch. It's almost uncomfortable in the sense that I'm not used to considering something like that the way I would something pretty like uh superficial like you know in a, in, a, in a comedy like oh my god is Jess gonna move out this week you know like that's that's what you're used to sort of thinking about when you're watching these shows yes i agree but i think it's i think it's a testament to the the, the good work that the writers on that show are doing is because you know for, for for much for basically the way romantic stories work in hollywood and movies and tv or rom-coms in general is happily ever after is the ending of course that's actually probably when things actually get interesting, but that's also when the writing gets a lot harder because you have to sort of get rid of the easier, lower-hanging fruit that, like, people are meant to be together, that everything works at a certain point, and then actually dig deep into the, the actual messy bones of everything. And I appreciate more than anything that these char- that Stephen Falk, who created the show, has never sold out the characters. I mean, they do, they behave in, say, creative ways at times <laughs> to each other and to the world in general, and they're a little bit misanthropic, which is what drew them together in the first place, but he's never sold them out for a joke or for a circumstance or for a situation. And so because of that, instead of just saying, well, these are just people who like to party all the time and it's great that they found each other, they're pushing past that. And instead of repeating season one, even at a time when it's not like the show was so popular that the people were sick of the things they did in season one, like the one memeable thing that that show did was Sunday Fun Day, where they just drink all day and drive around Los Angeles doing goofy things. Right. And obviously, you've got to come back to that. And they came back to it, but they came back to it with a Halloween-themed episode that was gnarlier than anything on yeah, American Horror Story. And basically, like, clearly, like, they're drinking and, you know, trying to distract someone from what mental illness, more or less. Yeah, from just crushing Anhedonia. Like, yeah. It was really dark. And that was the episode that you would expect them to draw people in on. But so I really appreciated their depiction of the haunted house on, uh, on that episode. Yo, you are a haunted house dude. I was wondering what you thought I about I know, I really that. dig an experiment, experiential horror experience. I, it's the same thing to say it's experiential and an experience, but it was that was very very funny when that dude is just like, I heard they have an actual Baba Duke. <laughs> How about the fact that one of the characters, Lindsay, basically ends up being James Gummed, like <laughs> yeah. inexplicably. She is just wearing lingerie and in a pit. Yeah, 
Well, a guy with some lotion baskets is just leering at her yeah. from above. He's just listening like, to goodbye horses. Yeah. But you, you, like, I feel like you would pay for this. You, you would go to this as a, as a, as an attraction. Like, you like to pay people to chase you through cornfields. This was the right? first but, year that I did. I did haunted hayride this year, and this was the first time that I really internalized the fact that the, the performers cannot touch you. So like knowing were you, were you, that, were you I feel daring like them? no. But I think that the whole idea is like you go through these haunted houses, and there's like just always the chance that a guy is going to stab you in the heart. Yeah, and that's like what makes it kind of exciting. But I really listened to the to the warning this year. I felt like it was a little bit more emphatic this year. So maybe somebody had a heart attack last year or something. And I was just like, I know that this dude who is wearing like a Ziploc bag over his face <laughs> and has blood coming out of his eyes can't actually touch me. Mm-hmm. And it just, That's, it just, it didn't ruin it, but it, it definitely softened the blow. Man, the last days of Grandland were dark, huh? <laughs> um, so uh, here's my question then. So it's a different way to look at TV shows, right? Because are you, the show is just aggressively pushing forward, and which I think that's actually, I think it's smart from an artistic point of view it might well be smart in a crowded industry crowded landscape point of view too right because they can't get mired in anything because the minute they start repeating themselves people can just click to their other options so the idea that they're sort of relentlessly moving forward and this is something stephen falk has told me that's what he learned from from jenji cohen we worked with her on weeds and on orange the new black she's just like just just story is everything just more story more story more story Mm -hmm. um but as someone who was a fan of the first season are you is it making you is is the way that the show is deepening itself is that keep. Are you the same level of fan in year two as you were in year one? I would say that for this specific show, the issue isn't so much the deepening of it as much as it's like I don't know how many. I you know it's now like twenty episodes or whatever of of people being r- really garbage human beings and they uh, are they are not. I would argue that they're they're very nice to each other. No, yeah, in ways, but then they're also just like Edgar. You're like you're you're post traumatic stress syndrome is hysterical make me eggs you know what i mean like i think it's funny but i probably have like i probably roll my eyes more at the comedy than i do at the drama eggs, eggs are good though eggs are important they're, they're eggs are dope um what about the aziz show what about master of none where are you with that yeah uh so the aziz show came out what last friday yeah and i'm almost done and I think it starts really strong. Like the first few episodes are like really, really, really great. And I, yeah. I have to, I mean, I'd say starts really strong as much as I, I think that the essay format for it, where it's about a topic with having some through lines mm-hmm. is great. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's a, it, it's almost funny cause it's, it's hard to talk about because it's gone through the overpraised backlash, backlash of the backlash and now backlash of the backlash of the backlash. And it's been on for six days so fast yeah Yeah, it's been kind of crazy um i would say that you know there are some points where i wonder whether or not if the acting was a little bit more fluid the emotional beats of the episode would be a little bit stronger but as far as a comedy and as far as like an observational comedy i find it hysterical and i really enjoy i mean just because i'm an you know essentially an aging hipster like i really enjoy the like the, the the eating guide of the eating tour of new york that he is going on and all that stuff, uh, it makes me miss New York City a lot. What do you think? I, I, I'm glad you mentioned the New York. I love the show. I, but I, I really love the New York City part of it, too, because I feel like we haven't ever really gotten, I don't know if this is the perfect example of it, but it's been very tricky for TV to capture a feeling that you and I know well um, 
about New York, which is when New York's at its most magical, you can have these days or nights when literally anything can happen. Yes. When it's like any any one interaction can just tumble down like like a like a Super Mario Brothers game down some magical pipe slash you know backroom bar right. into a whole other night where you run into a whole new another group of people or or your world collides with someone else's, and there's always a possibility to find you know the, the perfect piece of pizza or a perfect piece of sushi or just something else that's out there. And, you know, and then navigating your relationship with that possibility. Like, how do you keep chasing it or do you give up and try again? And the show has such a joyful feel, even though it deals with heavier things, which I, I really appreciate. And I think I heard on an interview that Aziz did with his co-writer, Alan Yang, on, uh, on Fresh Air, they talked about that's something that they both learned from Mike Schur on Parks and Recreation, that there's just as much comedy in positivity mm-hmm. um, as, as the alternative. This show, you know, it's not necessarily a New York that, that I know because I, when I was Aziz's age, I didn't, I don't think I had enough money to just fly to Nashville all the time or, 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 or be eating the delicious Come on, those are like, that was like a spirit flight for like 50 bucks. Yeah, okay, maybe so. Okay, maybe I just didn't have the confidence in myself. To you didn't that. have kayak.com or whatever. That's, that's probably right. Um, but, uh, or, or certainly like the, like the dating stuff. But I, I like the way the show is kind of capturing that spirit. Like the show is kind of about having a lot of, opportunities and then being not paralyzed by it but constantly perplexed or amused by it and that's a good place for comedy or drama or just a series like this show could go for a while and i think that you know and i I think i said this last week with bill but like you know netflix has gotten a lot of attention for some of its noisier shows for like working with marvel on daredevil which was good um or uh house of cards but to me this is really in many ways, their most successful show to date mm-hmm. because it, it should be what it, this is what they should be doing. You find these really talented people who have a real vision, and then you just get out of the way and let them execute. Yeah, it's like subtly probably one of the best directed shows of the year. I mean, it's just got this gorgeous, uh, you know, one of our uh, a buddy of ours from New York, Mark Schwartzbard, was the director of photography. Yes, he was. Yeah, and uh, he did a fantastic job. I mean, it's just like it kind of looks like the way New York looks and in and, and, and that, and that Mayu, like that, those bars and the outside of those theaters and outside of those restaurants and inside of those restaurants, it feels like it, you know? I also feel like it can go either way when you're like, I'm just going to get together with my friends and do something for fun. Like you, that's when you usually get like the most indulgent albums when bands do that. But in this case, when Aziz is like, I just want to like work with Alan and some of my other buddies and Eric Wareheim and like just going to hang out in New York City and be able to go to Momofuku on the weekends and I'm going to call Father John Misty for a cameo. Like that really could have gone sideways. Yeah. But it absolutely didn't. Uh, I really, I also enjoy the, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not a big Seinfeld fan. I know that's stupid, but I'm not. But I like how the observational comedy and the way that like when, when Denise and Arnold and Dev are sitting around a table, it has that Seinfeld in the living room feel. Yes. Of people yeah, like kind of doing bits, but not like being like, here's my bit. You know what I mean? Like it's, but it's, it's also, this is, this is, this goes back to what we were saying about like when the best, the, 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 still the best things about TV are the oldest things about TV, which is like, Oh, they're my pals again. They're my yeah. pals. And they're my stories. The funny and thing about, episode... you, know, you know, what's kind of cool is the difference between this and Seinfeld is that the Aziz's character is not a comedian. And I, I really like that. I like that. He's not always, the funniest person at the table. That's a good point. I, I would say that's probably the only difference between this and Seinfeld. Literally <laughs> every other frame. It's just basically like a remake. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, well, we're going to talk a little bit about one of our uh, yes. one of our favorite sort of pastimes, which is uh, talking about Jeremy Renner. Yo, he's not disappointed. I feel like, you know how we were talking last week about how Dame Lindelof and the crew at, at The Leftovers were, they, they said they were trolling us, basically? Yeah. 
I know that Jeremy, one of the best things about Jeremy Renner is that he has no idea who we are, what a podcast is, how to listen to it, or how to put on headphones. Like, he knows none of those. Jeremy things. Renner hasn't seen a Jeremy Renner film in 20 years. Jeremy Renner doesn't know Jeremy Renner as a professional like, actor. Like, that dude, that dude went to the, 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 like, you, you know, I can't even remember. Like, he probably went to the Hurt Locker premiere, and he has not seen a film since then. No, absolutely has never. He has not seen a film or television. But all of that is to say, he's not trolling us, but he basically was daring us to get back into the podcast business together with some of his behavior. Right. So some of you may remember back when Grayland, back on Grayland, when we had the HP Hollywood Prospectus podcast, we did an episode. We've talked about Jeremy Renner a couple of times, just as being like, just a fan of his work, man. Because we're big fans. We big love fans Jeremy Renner, work. the actor. Big fans of his work on screen and in the real estate <laughs> business. Yeah. Um, because Jeremy Renner is a notorious house flipper. And notorious. I, that's, that's not a metaphor. He just mm-hmm. literally flips houses. Um, he recently... You know, he had done an interview with Playboy that was like 10,000 words long and is one of the great back and forths I've ever read in my life. It's one of the great pieces of literature of, of this new century. Yeah, this this is sort of the, uh, you, know, you know, like this this sequel in Maxim is not, it's very obvious that the writer called him on his cell phone like as he was going from like the haberdashery to the to the plant store and he was just like, what are you, who is this? No, no they were literally like... No one told Jeremy Renner that in order to have his photo taken in that nice shearling coat, he would have to talk to someone named Jared. Yeah, and like, also... Uh, he wasn't briefed on that. He was also just doesn't know that interviews go on print and then in the internet. <laughs> no, he has no idea about that. Because uh, after a little bit of chit-chat about what's an essential item he carries with him every day, which is, I don't actually know, ellipsis, a credit card, I suppose. Um, the Maxim writer asks, what's your favorite curse word and why? And Jeremy Renner says, I think all of them are pretty amazing. C-word is pretty good. Now, there's no, like, here's, a, here's an opportunity. Now, I'm not trying to tell anybody how to do their job. But when Jeremy Renner says that and you're the interviewer, you might want to, like, just just take a second and, and maybe ask a follow-up. There's a follow-up there. The follow-up is, what makes you think that's a good idea to say that? Also, just let's talk about pretty good. Like, pretty good how? Like, pretty good in what context? Yeah, is, it, is it a pretty good word to say when, like, you know, you lowballed on a Spanish-style mid-century modern and yeah. the owners didn't accept it? Is it a good word to use when Jennifer Lawrence asks you to join her in protesting wage disparity? Yeah, is it pretty good when you turn on the television and see Byron Scott is not playing D'Angelo Russell in the fourth quarter? I mean, like, I, what do you, what is the I, really probably good? Probably that. Yeah. I, I would say that you've skips one of my favorite parts of it. Well, no, I'm not skipping is, anything. We're going through uh, this one by one. So I, the- I, I, Here's what I want to say. Among Jeremy Renner's many talents, acting, home decorating, getting in bar fights, but claiming to never get in bar fights, he occasionally lets slip verbiage that suggests he was not a native human being. <laughs> it's like he, does, he did not learn word speaking He's a in the same way He's like... that we did. And we talked about this a lot yeah. in the Playboy interview where he was like, I love this structure. Yeah. You know, like this is my domicile. This is... And every time I have a beautiful Great segue, structure... man, because here's the next question. Wait, wait, wait. Let me, let, me, let me say this. Because the credit card question, what do you carry every day? He says, I have an elastic around my ring finger yeah. for my baby daughter. Her hair is quite long. By the way, baby's hair is not that long. Hey, hold, hold on a part. second. Bill Simmons is here. Where's the headphone? <laughs> oh, you have it? Okay, well, while he puts on his headphones, can I just say? Yeah. He says, that elastic is a must. I always have that on my person. Yes. Do you talk about yourself as a person? No. <laughs> no one does. 
So now we're, hey. jo- we're joined briefly here by uh, by Bill Simmons, who just walked in the door. You're crashing the boards. Crashing the boards. Bill, we're talking about this Jeremy Renner interview in Maxim. Okay. Uh, Jeremy Renner is is one of our favorite topics, but he's particularly good at destroying his, his credibility in interviews. Yeah. So we just talked about how uh, the first question in, in this Maxim interview was, what's your favorite curse word and why? And Jeremy Renner's response was, I think all of them were pretty amazing. C word is pretty good. <laughs> Which is just like, you're Hawkeye. Just think about the brand there for a second, right? Here's another one. What's one item every man should have in his wardrobe, Andy? Yeah, again, his answer here is he says, a baseball cap, it's essential especially for me. I can hide my face from this sun. You're not powder. What are you doing? Like, why does Jeremy Renner need to hide his face from the sun? Because what he's saying is he can hide his face from paparazzi, right? But instead, he makes it as if he's some sort of escaped Greek god, and Apollo is looking for him. Yeah. Are you a fan of Jeremy Renner? Define fan. Yeah, I mean, like, are are you ever like, Jeremy Renner's in this, I'm going to go see this movie. I liked him in the town. That's true. He was very good in the town. That's part of the reason why he's become such an iconic figure for us. It seems like he should just play Boston people. I feel like, Bill, you have like a look on your face, which is, did I miss the conversation about the affair? No. <laughs> the look is, I, I was doing football preparation for tomorrow, and Lake Placid was on cable. Oh, I was, like, my have, God. I love it, Lake Placid. And it ended it, and it went right into Still Alice. <laughs> and I'm what? in this whole Julian Moore's <laughs> Alzheimer's. <laughs> and I'm rattled. I had to get away. Wait, it, like they literally were like a Julianne Moore double feature of Still Alice and Lake Placid? Yeah. Can we talk about what kind of Thursday afternoon someone in America is having where they're just cuddling up with an absolutely soul-reaving Alzheimer's drama at 2 p.m.? I, I didn't. It was on, and I wasn't paying attention. And then all Wait, of is Julianne Moore in Lake Placid? Or is it Bridget Fonda? No, Julianne Moore's not in Lake Placid. Oh, I thought you were saying it's a Julianne Moore double feature. No. Okay. No, it was Lake Placid was on. It spilled into Still Alice. <laughs> Which it's one of those Shout movies. Out to whoever's the programmer on that cable channel, that's great. It, it's 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 it just sucks you in, and then uh, you just you're so down. Still, Alice. Yeah, I. It, it's like one of the saddest movies I've ever seen. I'm not even done with it yet. I paused it. Yeah, I. Think I haven't it, even really. She's like looking around for a bathroom now, and I, I was rattled. <laughs> I had to come outside. So the still, you know how there's the whole thing about when you're watching a movie on a plane, it causes it's because of the oxygen or whatever you cry easily more easily. I've seen is people, that true? yeah, and I've seen people watch Still Alice on a plane, and it looks like everybody is watching like a met like the Matthew McConaughey Interstellar messages from the past. We're just like, Dad, well, here's my son, Dad, Grandpa died, and he's just like sobbing. It, that's what people look like when they watch Still Alice on planes. Why would you watch Still Alice on a plane? I don't know. San Andreas is right there. <laughs> of all the things you can do in what is already one of the worst circumstances to be in, which is on a long flight. Why would you watch something about Alzheimer's? I don't know. I mean, it, is, it, would you rather watch something about Alzheimer's or something about, like, Los Angeles falling into the Pacific Ocean? Depends where I was flying to. That's true. If, if, I, was, I, if I was flying east, that would be, that would be a laugh, man. <laughs> I just want the Losers. Them to, when is San Andreas 2 coming out? I don't even need The Rock. What's, I just need what, Carla Gugino wait, and Alexander so, Daddario. So what's left? That's the question. They're so just still driving line? around in that speedboat. Still hasn't run out of gas. <laughs> hey, Andy. Quick question about San Andreas. Does Seattle collapse too? Because that's the next one, right? That's the next one. That's got to be the next one. Andy, I, ha- I have a really sad topic to bring up. Oh, no. Not, okay. not as sad as still Alice, but almost as sad. <laughs> okay, all right. Are you watching Last Man on Earth? Uh, I'm a few weeks behind, but I, I just went back to catch up with it, yeah. One of the worst second seasons in 
in a while. It actually bums me out. I checked out when they left her at the gas station. I'm sure. It, I'm sure. It just was one of those things where I just couldn't catch up. It's rough, right? Like, but it. It, it's sort of like a, it, it almost makes sense that it's not working right now because the whole thing was never, it was such a high wire act. Like they, the, the whole pe- reason the first season worked is because no one could believe they were going to get away with it. Is it one and of those, we've been talking a lot about second seasons right now. It's like, yeah. is it one of those things where they just never should have done one? I don't know what the answer is, but my kids who love Last Man on Earth for some reason. Because it's like the fantasy of being able to destroy everything. And not yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, which is really what the show should be about. And they've added all these people. And at one point, like after four episodes, my daughter just turned to me like completely serious. was like, Daddy, why isn't the show funny anymore? Oof. <laughs> which is bad. Yeah. That's, a, that's a bad place to be. Also, um, you don't need a TV critic anymore, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, maybe she's the new one. Not funny anymore. They did They did the right thing, though. They moved it to Malibu, which is where, you know, if there's ever an apocalypse, that's where everybody should try to go. Don't be in Arizona. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, 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 but the interesting thing about the show was, you know, the first episode was so brilliant and it was such a tease because they, the whole feeling was like, are they really going to do this? Is it really just going to be Will Forte? Then they bring in Christian Shaw and it's like, okay, they could do this for a while. But then I couldn't figure out if they were being brilliant or just being scared because then they suddenly crashed everyone into it and the whole first season at the end of it felt like a normal sitcom it was just different rules but it was like a sitcom set in the walking dead universe are you guys do you guys care about all the rating stories at all that people have been writing lately about where primetime ratings and just how the models changing all that stuff because like abc had a 10 o'clock show what's the 10 o'clock show on abc you mean mean wicked city yeah wicked city was on (laughs) wicked city got a 0.4 which is basically what we used to get for 30 for 30s on ESPN2. Right. So you, you're basically the executive producer of Wicked City, is what you're saying, by yeah. transitive property. It's 0.4. It's like we could run this on ABC right now, and it would probably get a 0.4. I don't know what the hell is happening to ratings and how people watch TV, but it feels like the whole model is blowing up. Right. So the music industry went through this, too, where now if you sell 500,000 copies of a record in three months, you're like a superstar. Right. right? But the, diff- the difference is with TV is that they're, the, the, the way that people have watched TV has outpaced the way the industry has adjusted to monetize it. Yeah, Because right. there's no question that everyone is watching stuff and more people are watching more things than ever before. And like the really savvy networks have stayed a little bit ahead of it. But, you know, I, I talked to Joel Stillerman at AMC about this because like Halt and Catch Fire, a show I really like, they found a way to keep it alive for a third season, even though the ratings are terrible, because they're basically, they own it, which helps. And that it, with a lot of these shows, it helps. But they're making the bet that if we invest in this now, at some point, this will be in our content library, and people will discover it, and that has value. But, it's, but when you're ad-supported, it's hard to make that case. And when you have a slasher show starting, starting Chuck Bass, you're, you're just out of luck. I had some ideas for the Monday Night ABC, because obviously I love Jimmy Kimmel. He's my old boss, yeah. my buddy, and I don't, I don't want him to have a lead-in that gets a 0.4. <laughs> First of all, just lost reruns. I think yeah. any lost rerun just does better than a 0.4. Oh, yeah. Um, second, lost reruns, but with J.J. Abrams, but with some... It's J, hosted by J.J. Abrams. Not J.J. Abrams. Uh, Lind- Lindelof. Who is the Lindelof? Lindelof. Hosted by Lindelof, but with like the meanest possible lost message board person, yes. the kind of guy who was in Lindelof's head the whole time. <laughs> yes. And it's just this uneasy PTI type thing coming yeah. in and out of breaks where he's like, boy, uh, Nikki and Paulo. I mean, that was horrible. And just Lindelof being really touchy about it. But, but also, what if they don't tell him in advance? So he just, we just see him sweating in an empty studio and then the credits go up and he realizes it's the Bai Ling tattoo episode. And you just see his face crater in real time. Well, they, here's my third idea. 
so Lost was what six, seven seasons. Mm-hmm. How many actual seasons were in those seven seasons? Probably of, like of rear content where things moved. So three. where it wasn't just like a throwaway. Yeah, episode. just throwaway or like, hey, here's the backstory of of freaking Terry it, it, O'Quinn, it like whatever his name three was. Three and a half. Wait, how say. long do you think? I would say maybe three and a half out of six seasons because the, the first three was the first season was great and the second two were kind of all over the place and then they got they got it together and had the limited the shorter seasons for the last. Well, season. you know what would be kind of interesting is if they did do what they did to the Godfather trilogy, which is where they cut it chronologically. So you basically oh. start at the earliest flashback, chronological loss, and show it up to and through so that basically the the plane crash would happen in the middle of the, se- the series. Here's my counter. Yeah, you be, that means you begin with Alice and Janney as Eve giving birth to twins. <laughs> oh no! With 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 uh, like cuneiform writing all around her. So I feel like that's problematic for new new fans. What about a bridge lost, leading up to the moment where Jack says we have to go back, and then it just ends? I think you could do that in a season. It'd be and twenty episodes would, of just chopped. And that's content. better than Wicked City. Yeah. Yeah. I would actually. I might actually run back Lost if they edited out all the fat. It would be the difference of. A five-pound porterhouse steak that has a ton of fat, and I got to really work at it, and I got to use my steak knife and cut pieces. But the thing is, you could pieces. do that now with, with iTunes or whatever, and, and you wouldn't need to, to sit through commercials on a Monday night. No, but I have somebody cutting all the fat for me. That's it's true. true. That would actually be a pretty good job, would be like the TV concierge. Well, yeah, like, they do I wanna, condensed I games on your Lost experience. Yeah, a condensed games version of Lost. Andy, this should be your. This should be one of your new jobs. TV concierge. Yeah, I, I deliver the the like. What kind of experience would you like? To, would you like the boring and digressive one, or would you like the lean, like power power pack? Because I think they could do the same thing with NYPD Blue. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, might be, I think NYPD Blue may have not aged as well as we remember, though. No, but there are a lot of shows. It's a different thing, though, because of the way network shows were just ran forever with 22 episodes. It's only in hindsight that we see what were the important stories. So if you go back, like you look at what was ER, like 11 years um, or yeah. more? And so what were the actual storylines that matter and what were just like, we love the show and we like hanging out in the Chicago trauma ward? Like there were there were probably you could take make make three strong seasons out of the most important stories out of these long running shows. Oh wait, guys, I got I know how to save Monday nights. Here's what? what we do. You put together a Brenneman block. Oh. Where it's just <laughs> Brenneman on NYPD Blue episodes, judging Amy. Brenna yeah. block. The Brenna block. The uh the first season of Leftovers where she doesn't talk. Yeah. And then and then go right into Kimmel. But but Brenneman is a guest on Kimmel. And then Brenneman is a guest on Kimmel. And she doesn't talk. Andy had the idea. So ER, Clooney's on that show, and Clooney becomes one of the biggest stars in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now a lot of people, probably I would say 25 and under, don't really remember ER, don't even know that Clooney was on it. You go back, you just take all the Clooney scenes, and you make it ER slash the Doug Ross show. You're you're basically pretending it's a new show, and he's just in every scene. Yeah, but there's like plenty of... He wasn't big enough star of it, so in the first season of ER, there's plenty of scenes where like the extent of his participation is playing pickup basketball. That's fine. It's a lot of pickup basketball. He's just like, I don't know, I can't commit to Juliana Margulies. First of all, yeah, that would would not age well, not committing to Juliana Margulies in today's day. But... Yeah, there's. I mean, it, you, we are reaching the point where these networks are going to have to, you know, dig dig deep because you mentioned Chris mentioned the record industry. It's the catalog that kept things alive, right? Like the fact that people keep buying. Like college freshmen will buy Bob Marley's Legend every year, no matter what, yeah. and that keeps an entire you know mega corporation alive. So these networks 
probably should keep going back to the well, except for some of these shows, they don't own them. So, like, NBC doesn't own ER, Warner Brothers. Does. Can I ask a really stupid question? Stupider than the five stupid questions I just asked <laughs> in the last five minutes? This is going to be stupider than Brenham and Block. What is stopping them from abandoning Nielsen? Like, why not come up with a new rating that's just like, yeah, you know what? Like, this plus this equals this rating, and this show is doing X business. I, I think it's because I don't have the... I don't have the best answer, which is a polite way of saying the accurate answer. I think it has a lot to do with advertising, right? Well, also, they might not like the numbers they get back, right? They might not like the numbers, and at least this way, I mean, like the networks exist because of ad sales. The ad sales are still based on Nielsen, and that's just the way it's locked in. But a network like a network like FX has abandoned traditional ratings. They do not report or release their overnights anymore. They only re- report the, the L plus 3 and the L plus 7 because they feel like that's a lot more telling as to who's actually watching and why, and that's how they're, they're basing their decisions off of that. We should and have done you, that at Grantland. <laughs> done, who's reading? Oh, not, not, Just uh, <laughs> released our ratings in our own way. <laughs> yeah, Here's our DVR Plus ratings for this, hey, for this have, blog post. I have the best idea to save the 10 o'clock Monday night ABC. Old Bachelors. What do they have, like 25 seasons worth? Oh, Juliet's not watching season three? Yeah. Why not? Oh, just br- I, run them I, back, edit them in a different way, and add like a couple comedians and stuff. And I thought you meant like old bachelors, like Cocoon, the weekly series. Oh, like literally old <laughs> oh bachelors. Oh my god, what an incredible idea! <laughs> old bachelor, <laughs> master bachelors. Yeah, like people over seventy. Yeah, just old people trying to find love. The only oh. thing I can guarantee is that my mom would definitely be on wait, that show. <laughs> my mom really needs a date. If that you're in Beverly Hills bad. and you're old and you and you like to drink wine, my mom's available. Wait, why has that not been explored? As it, like, I know that old people in general are like anathema, like they don't put them on TV because they think that audiences will be horrified and run away. But like, what? what why not? Well, one we're of these talking about the shows? Bachelor here. I mean, there's a lot of distance to cover between like 26 and 80. Like, we could get well, get some no, silver foxes all, in there. Viag- all, a lot of Viagra. Yeah. 31 is 80 in the Bachelor universe, right? Seriously? Like, you are basically a desiccated corpse if you are over the age of 30 on that world. But. Like, why not set one of these shows in, like, Palm Beach or something? You Old know, Bachelor. Like, or, yeah, Palm Beach Old, Bachelor. That'd be great. Old, Old Bachelor's Bachelor. incredible. I was thinking Old <laughs> Bachelor's, but I like Old Bachelor more. <laughs> that Here's would, Bob. CBS needs to make that show. I'm, a, like, I'm an excellent shuffleboarder. In my spare time, I like to listen to Yankees games on the radio and make peanut butter sandwiches. <laughs> and write angry comments on Facebook yeah. about how the president is a Muslim. Like, this is people. I'm, I'm <laughs> Let Republicans. <laughs> looking for someone who wants to to get in on early bird specials at Jewish diners in Palm Beach, Florida. <laughs> would, you, would, you, would you like to go out to dinner with me? It's at 445, you can <laughs> A roast ceremony is at six today because Bob's got to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I had another idea for old bachelor. You know how in the in the real bachelor, there's always a couple girls they throw in there. One of them has a kid. One right. of them was was the husband died, and then one of them the engagement got called off. I, okay, so this no, happens I, all the time. I don't actually watch the bachelor. I'm taking you don't have to it. feel bad for your snicker. It's a terrible show. Okay. But it's a big part of the show is when they drop the bomb on The Bachelor because right, it's right. like the one real point of, of influence they're going to have over him is he's going to feel bad. They're going to connect. Right. She's going to start crying. And then when the engagement got called off, I was devastated. I was so humiliated. Puts the arm around her. With, the, with old Bachelor, <laughs> you'll have some widowers. I mean, oh, you'll yeah. have a couple. My husband died here, and then it'll be like, when does that card get played? Right. Or like, my husband left me for a woman who was twenty-five years younger than me. 
he's a snake. It drove our family. Like there will be all these different cards that will be so much more uh, feel fresh. And Bob's like, I want to hear this story, but I have to go home because NCIS is on at 8 o'clock. <laughs> Bob's like, I have to pee. Hold I, I on. To put Hold the this VHS thought. tape in and set it to record. Bob's exactly. asleep. My, my, my heart is inflamed, but so is my bladder. Like <laughs> Uh, well, I have to go. I think we could we could probably wrap up with Old Bachelor because nobody's ever going to have a better idea than that. Andy, it was great talking to you again, man. I guess so. Next week we're going to be on Channel Thirty Three, like we said at the beginning of the episode. It's the yeah. new the new podcast feed. You can hear the watch, uh, and there will be some other pods on there very shortly. Thanks for dropping by, Bill. Thank you. Thank you. It was it was <laughs> good Bachelor, to hear you guys. Mondays at ten. Great um, job, Baranski. Great job, Baranski. <laughs>